Support for Innovation Hub comes from Bunker Hill Community College Compelling Conversation Series with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar on Religious Intolerance, October 26th. You can register at bhcc.edu cc. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB1 package, a checking account combined with investing through Connect Invest to help you build a better tomorrow. CambridgeSavings.com slash CSB1. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. There are these two ideas that, to some degree, I think, a lot of us believe. One is, you can't really put a price on happiness. And the other is, if you had just a little more money, you'd be a lot happier. The economist Robert Frank has spent years trying to figure out how money and happiness intersect when it comes to your job. He's a professor at Cornell and a contributor to the New York Times, and he says this is something that you actually can calculate. I asked him when experts started trying to figure out the value of getting the right job for you. Oh, this is a very old device in economics. It goes back at least as far as Adam Smith, which means nobody knows how much further back it could go. Uh, you can look at, at uh, people who are similarly situated uh, in jobs, for example. Maybe one job is just like another, except that it's riskier. You're more likely to die if you take the first job. Most people don't like uh, exposure to risk, and so why would you take the risky job if somebody were offering the, the safer one at the same pay? So the only way they can right. fill the riskier job is to offer a premium uh, in pay. And, and the economists exploit that observation by saying, well, we'll look at how much extra you get paid for each one in a thousand probability of dying on the job each year and make an right. estimate of the statistical value of a life by doing that. And, and that same technique can be applied to just about any kind of job characteristic that people care about. You know, uh, the Gallup organization uh, fairly often will try to get a sense of how Americans feel about their jobs. Um, And something like, it depends on the year, but something like 30% of Americans say, yes, I feel engaged at work. When you read that 30%, I don't know how that sounds to you, but that sounds terrible to me. So what's going on that 70% of people presumably are saying, yeah, I don't really feel that engaged with the the thing I do every day? That's uh, probably accurate. It strikes me just from my own uh, familiarity with that literature. And it's also, as, as you suggest, a sad statistic. You know, we spend more time working probably than we do at anything else. And right. If you're, if you're not happy about what you're doing most of those hours, that's too bad. Uh, maybe that's inevitable. Maybe, maybe the choices you face don't permit a better outcome than that. But uh, in a surprising number of cases, there are better options. What are we doing wrong that we have those kinds of numbers? I mean, how, how would you uh, flip them? How would you get it to the point where 70 percent of people are happy with their jobs? <laughs> Uh, I teach MBAs. Uh, that's that's my job, uh, and and they confront this kind of decision in a very dramatic way. Uh, 
they they go out into the job market, they do interviews, they get offered different positions, and uh, it's hard to compare different jobs. There there are probably a hundred characteristics of any job that people might, in principle, right. care about. And the the one that's easier to observe than any other is how much are they going to pay you? And so I think the tendency, uh, both for prestige reasons, both for uh, uh, an inflated sense of how important men- money is for your ability to lead a happy life, for a variety of other reasons, people in that part of the job market at least focus too much on which one offers me the most money and don't think quite enough about the other characteristics that go along with that job. And so I try to tell my students, look, if they're paying you way more uh, than you expected to get, ask yourself, what is it exactly they want you to do? Maybe they mm-hmm. want you to do something that most people don't like to do. Right. They're, they're, they're giving you some hardship pay. You have to figure out what That's the right. hardship is. Yeah. What's the catch here? That's right. The, and there usually is one. When, uh, when you think about students that you've had in the past and that maybe you kept up with and, and you were able to talk to after they took that initial job or two, did they often come back to you and say something like, Boy, I took the whatever two hundred thousand dollar year job, not the hundred fifty thousand dollar year, and I I made a mistake. Or what do they say to you? Yeah, I often do hear that. Uh, in in the MBA job market, the temptations are to go into investment banking or consulting. Those are the two fields that pay the most. And often students come back and say, I did it for five years, but I just couldn't do it any longer. It was just uh, the hours, the travel, the the constant sense of burnout were just more than I and my family could could tolerate, mm-hmm. uh, and so I've switched to some other thing. and And they often report, "Wow, that 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 was a a, a big eye opener when they they saw how much nicer it felt to come home at the end of the day, feeling like you'd done something you actually felt proud of doing." You um you talk about an experiment that uh that you did, I think, at Cornell with with students, looking at. Two very similar jobs, um, sort of writing essentially message or advertising copy, one for the American Cancer Society um, and one working on behalf of tobacco companies, essentially. Right. Talk about that experiment and what it told you about what people are willing to do for money. Uh, th- this was a question I posed to a group of graduating seniors at Cornell some years back. Uh, the the jobs paid the same. The offices were the same. They had the same travel budgets. Assume all this. Uh, in one case, you're writing copy for an ad campaign aimed at discouraging teenagers from starting to smoke. That That's the American Cancer Society job. Uh, and then the Tobacco Institute job was to write ad copy for a campaign encouraging teenagers to smoke. Which job would you take if they both paid the same? Well, not surprisingly, uh, 90-plus percent of the the respondents said, oh, they would pick the anti-tobacco ad copywriting job. Right. Then I asked them, all right, now imagine uh, that the tobacco job, pro-tobacco job, was paying you a premium if you'd switch to their office. How much would the premium have to be? And the average premium that people reported was in the order of 80% over the salary that they were earning at the Cancer Society job. So, you know, it's a, it's a non-trivial number. 
You know, right. you could say it's just t- cheap talk. What would people do if they actually faced uh, right, a choice right. like that, if they had bills to pay? But, you know, we can look to the labor market uh, and, and we can see uh, the, the Harvard and Yale law grads who were on law review, those are, uh, they could take any job in the legal field they want. Uh, the very best of them split. Uh, some of them go to the big corporate firms, mostly in New York City. They, they earn huge salaries. Others take public interest jobs like American Civil Liberties Union, also in New York huh. City, where they earn about a third as much as they would earn in the private law firm mm-hmm. jobs. And it's not that they're not as good. Uh, it's not that the hours aren't long in both jobs. They are. But when they go home at the end of the day, they they feel like apparently it was worth it to take the big put, cut and pay just to be able to say, I felt good about what I was doing all day. Does it matter in absolute terms how much money you make or does it matter how much money you make in terms of happiness in comparison to how much the guy down the street makes? Like, do, do you, you know, if you're making a ton of money, but the people on both sides of you are making even more money? Do you feel, still feel kind of unhappy because you're, you know, <laughs> yeah. by comparison, yeah, this, the poor guy on the block? This is a question I've studied for almost my entire career, and, and the clear answer is that context matters enormously. Uh, I, I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Nepal uh, fresh out of college. I lived in a two-room house. It, it didn't have any electricity or plumbing. Never once during the two years I lived in it did it seem in any way unsatisfactory. You know, I was proud to have colleagues over. It was a totally satisfactory house in that context. Uh, But if I lived in a house like that here in Ithaca, which isn't a a high roller town, uh, you know, I would would feel embarrassed about the fact my kids wouldn't have wanted their friends to see where we lived. Uh, It would have been unacceptable. So, yes, context matters a great deal, but so does absolute income matter. If you had a choice between if you were going to be in the middle of the distribution in a rich country or a poor country, uh, you'd have good reasons to think it might be a better choice to go to the rich country. You'd live longer there. The air would be cleaner. There'd be less noise. There would be better water. The jobs would be more interesting. So having economic progress isn't an empty thing. Uh, uh, good things happen when, when incomes grow higher. But, but yeah, you ought to be willing to trade some of your income in favor of a, 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 a better context. Well, it explains in some ways why so many Americans think they are middle class, even if they are not necessarily middle class. They may be, you know, in a lower class. They may be in a higher class. But um, generally, people live around people like them. So you might be a very rich person. and You live in the middle of San Francisco. But everybody around you is so much richer. It feels like you're middle class. Yeah, and and in in the most meaningful sense, you are. uh, You have a peer group. Uh, You know, it it doesn't matter how smart you are relative to people on some other planet. You're not competing with them. So it's the local environment that really is your frame of reference for everything important to you or almost everything important to you. So if you're at the bottom of that group, then that's a, a reason to be concerned. How am I doing? Well, I'm not doing very well. Uh, if you're at the top of that group, whatever the group happens to be, then you feel like, hey, uh, life's, life's going okay for me. So you know, most people are in the middle of whatever group they're in. Do you find that uh, having money 
um, gives you the ability, you know, maybe from your parents or whatever, gives you the ability to be happier in the end because you're able to, let's say, make a career shift in the middle somewhere, you know, go back to school, do the kind of thing that somebody who didn't have that kind of money could not draw on wealthy parents. Um, You know, you can do that. They can't. Yeah. Yeah. There are some clear advantages to having money, but it's uh, got a downside, too. Uh, I was adopted as an infant. Uh, I later met my uh, birth mother's family, lovely old New England family with uh, a a fairly large uh, amount of wealth that had been passed down through the generations in it. And uh, it, it struck me that if I had grown up in that family and knew that I had a a trust fund coming my way in my 20s or 30s, uh, would I have taken the steps I took to develop a career for myself? Mm -hmm. I'm I'm really quite skeptical that I would have. You know, I would have found it very easy to say, I'll work on that tomorrow uh, and and continue to do what's most most fun for me to do today. There's a great piece. Warren Buffett's son wrote uh, wrote an essay. It was uh, on NPR some years back, uh, expressing his deep gratitude for the fact that his father had made it clear to him early on that he wouldn't be inheriting a big pile of money from his father. Huh. Uh, he he has carved out just a wonderfully satisfying niche for himself uh, in the artistic domain uh, and. Uh, I think rich parents, if they haven't uh, seen a similar testimony uh, on that subject, would would do very well to go and read that that essay and and think about what posture to strike vis-a-vis their own kids and, and inheritance. Robert Frank is a professor of economics at Cornell. Thank you so much for your time. Kara, what a pleasure. And we'll have a link to a New York Times article that Robert Frank wrote about the value of a job at our website, innovationhub.org.